Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated on the challenges of implementing the Zero Trust Executive Order at the recent ATARC Cybersecurity Breakfast. My guests on that panel were Shane Barney, Chief Information Security Officer for the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services in the Department of Homeland Security, Miguel Adams, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Department of Administration and Finance at the Millennium Challenge Corporation, Elisa Fiola, a Cybersecurity Advisor for the Technology Transformation Services in the General Services Administration's Federal Acquisition Service, and Ben Boykin, Vice President Public Sector for Venify. First, you're from Shane Barney, CISO at USCIS. CIS is cloud heavy, uh, 95% of my enterprise is cloud. Uh, we have been involved in cloud for 10 years, 12 years, something like that, long time. Um, first federal agency to do that, first federal agency to DevOps. Um, and so as we've evolved and, and, and changed and, and made a lot of mistakes, we've also you know, matured our organization and things. So we started into this so-called thing Zero Trust quite a while ago, and so most recently what we're doing is really expanding our portfolio and how we do automation across all, well, all five pillars. We were doing it previously, but now we define it by pillars even if they're silly. And, and so really the big push right now is to how we do that automation, how we integrate the, the SOC and actually other teams within that automation portfolio. And, it, and it's much bigger, more expansive than just the SOC. I've always been a fan, security programs are a security program. Therefore, when you talk about automation, you should talk about your security automation, which involves your entire security program. So it should be your risk, your governance, how you do documentation, all of that. So the big push right now is for us to leverage some of these, these newer frameworks that have come out that are allowing us to do like, for example, automation of all of our documentation. I find it ridiculous that we do PDF files for security plans. I find absolutely no value in that. So we're automating that. We're automating the way that the dev teams communicate and, and how that, that, that communication then translates into documentation for our security plans or for updates to how we do things. So it, it's a big challenge. It's a big, it's a big undertaking. When I first started proposing it, my teams thought I was absolutely insane, which I've probably sort of am. But the reality is, is that in the modern cyber world, you know, you, you heard how many incidences were faced. I know how many my agency has faced in this last year, and I know how some of them are really significant. And, and matter of fact, we're not, nobody's taking time off in December. We've actually, December's officially ruled as everybody comes to work because something <laughs> bad's going to happen. And, you know, we, we just, it's the way we, it's the new world that we live in. So it, we have to get to the point where threat and threat focused is the, through where you're doing threat hunting as a continual process of your cybersecurity program. We can no longer just rely on a check box. You know, checkbox security is, is just, it should have died a long time ago. It's still around, it's still with us, but uh, we're, we're trying to kill it off as quickly as possible. That was good, that was good. All right, quick follow-up for you, of course, is when we talk about automation, does it change the business process? Because, because again, it's that old, are you just automating bad processes, or are you also improving the process itself to say, what, what data are we pulling? How's that data useful and the like? No, that's a great question. And, then, and there's two different ways we approach automation. Sometimes we're automating things that have never been done. There's really no business practice wrapped around it because it's either new or, or different or, or somehow we're changing up things. So it makes it actually a little easier. 
when we're faced with existing business processes, we'll often model the existing business process with the automation. Lots of reasons for doing it that way. We've done it a couple different ways, but what we found by modeling the existing business process, one, it kind of helps us find and figure out what exactly it is we're after. It's not, when you're talking about efficiency, it's not the most efficient way by any stretches of the imagination, but we sort of iterate towards perfection, which of course we've never achieved, but there's a theory behind that. And so really, it's the, once we get the business process down, then we can start looking at it and going holistically and saying, well, this doesn't make any sense anymore. We are doing this based on outdated technology or outdated you know, policy. We can remove that or we can streamline this. And we find that that process, it's not quite as efficient necessarily, but it actually is very effective. Um, and it helps us find things that we maybe not we weren't even aware of that we were doing or should be doing. So it's sort of a split of both. All right. Thank you, Shane. Miguel from the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Yeah. Well, well. first, uh, thank you, Ray Tark, for inviting me and for allowing me to share my thoughts. And, and he used to work with CIS. I'm yeah, sure. yeah, we worked together, yeah. <laughs> so I hope I'm not too disappointed in your in my response, but what we're doing and what I'm taking advantage of is, is teaching, collaborating, and moving forward with an education program to the uh, agency. And that's and the reason I'm doing this is I want a value proposition. We talked a little bit about earlier the moderators talked about collaborating and how this is for the for the customer. And this is exactly, if I don't get the customers on board, if I don't get their understanding, the program is going to be difficult to implement. And so I'm taking time to go out to departments and divisions, teaching them the, the vernacular, teaching them what zero trust is, why we need to do this, and the benefits, I hope, the value proposition of what it could translate to them. Uh, we travel a lot in the agency, and we've been, our endpoints have been hardened for some time now. But our infrastructure now, the castle, moat, you know, everything, we're a young agency compared to most other, we're, we're 20 years, we're going to celebrate 20 years soon, so we're not there yet. And most everything we have is in the cloud. So um, that's what we're doing. I'm also taking time to, to uh, it, within the office of CIO, teach and collaborate with our, our business partners in there. For example, our, our infrastructure team, our, our development team. And so that can, we can all understand the same language of what zero trust is. It's, it's a new, I take it as a new uh, endeavor for, for the agency. And, and I, I hate to date myself, but I remember putting out my first LAN. And it was, it was a difficult uh, challenge uh, back then for the business process. If we don't do this with our, with our uh, with our customers, they're going to probably have a little reluctance into, and, and they'll find other ways to do things that they find easier. So that's what we're doing. All right. I have a quick follow-up. I was moderated a different panel. Sure. I, I do other panels. And one of the things that we expected to talk all about, well, where are you with your zero trust journey and why zero trust is important? How are you dealing with micro-segmentation and all these fun things? And the discussion ended up really all about the user experience. And everybody on the panel is both industry and government were saying, you got to get that right. If, you're, if, you, if you don't get the user experience right, what's the point? Is, is that really what's behind your education a little bit? And, and maybe how are you ensuring that user experience is, is, is right? That's a great question. So zero trust is a, you know, it's a change. It's a change from implicit to explicit access control. And so we all know this. But to do that, so our data is now released to, to an individual with certain 
at the time of day, the activity-based uh, access control. We have implicit zones that we're going to implement, and the, the users need to understand that they're not going to have access to everything at one time. And if, if that's going to be a big change, guys. I mean, that for me, in my agency, we implement access control from the user level. The, somebody will go in there and they'll, they'll do the SharePoint permissions and everything else. But uh, it goes beyond that. And so data categorization for us is, is really starting out. Uh, and we want the metadata behind that so that this process is automated and, and it's and we're going to, you know, there's going to be some pain in there because we're not going to get the policy right the first time. And so if the users don't understand why we're doing this and, and how we're moving this forward, then I think we're going to have a, you know, we're, we're setting ourselves up for failure. So, yeah, exactly. All right. Now, Alisa from TTS, but she has a surprise for us. So I am permanently at the Technology Transformation Services at GSA, and but I am uh, detailed to the Office of Government-Wide Policy uh, do, with Emerging Technology. Um, so we're trying to take painful activity that involves policy and try to make it less painful. Um, so I'm studying, uh, or not studying, but trying to see what is out there related to zero trust pillars. We all hate that word. I'm, I'm glad you were brave enough to admit it for all of us. <laughs> so that is such as identity authentication alternatives. So really harping on the OMB memo that mentioned the phishing resisted MFA. So getting to that next, I hate saying it, next gen of like beyond that PIV and what comes after that and seeing what is out there for emerging technology, uh, things like continuous author, um, authentication and are we going to be identified using our keystrokes and wearables and things like that? So it's a really exciting landscape of what's out there. Also, it touches upon software bill of materials with open source software and how that affects the supply chain risk management aspects. So looking into the critical technology aspects into that and how we're making sure that whatever we're developing is done in a secure manner. Um, but I want to pause there because I did listen to the last panel and I just want to mention that I have been a federal employee for 15 years and I am 35 years old. So I came in as a GS3 and I came in through what is now the Pathways program. It was then student temporary experience program. I converted to a student career experience program, uh, went through a career ladder. I am now currently a GS15. Uh, I purposefully work at the technology transformation service somewhere where we have the digital core service where we uh, have a way for new entry-level people to come into the federal service so i think there is a space and a willingness for young 
entrepreneurs to come into the government and be entrepreneurs and share their desire to support the American people mm -hmm. and doing tech and innovation. There's absolutely a way, and there's a good way. But I have a question on something else. Yeah. Of course. Of course. So when you talk about some looking at the emerging landscape, and, and I think identity and access management gets a lot of attention when it comes to zero trust. What you are doing at, through OGP Emerging Technologies is saying, okay, today we have the PIV card. Today we have derived credentials. Yep. We have other. Are you looking at okay, what's coming up in three, five, seven years? It, exactly. It, it's a little bit of both of. What are agencies wanting to do today that they're currently being blocked by existing policy that we can make recommendations to either OMB, NIST, et cetera, federal agencies that they would need to change so that they unblock, so the forward-thinking agencies that want to do things tomorrow can do their tomorrow things and also taking a look to what this means for a foothold for five to 10 years. And we know from the last administration, they unblocked a lot of those old policies, the, the 1999, we must do this this way policy. Yep. Are there, again, without maybe revealing too much, because you probably will say it's pre-decisional, I can't talk about it. Are there some policies that are standing out to you that go, yes, here's, we will be making some recommendations, hopefully, or some give some ideas to our friends at OMB to rethink things? Is there anything that That's broadly you can, I know you haven't been there very long, but. I, I haven't, but that is one of those activities that our office is actively engaged in previously, and I think it's a continuous activity that our agency looks to do. Or our office looks to do. We have to take a break. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated on the challenges of implementing the Zero Trust Executive Order at a recent HR cybersecurity breakfast. My guests on that panel were Shane Barney, the Chief Information Security Officer for the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services in DHS, Miguel Adams, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Millennium Challenge Corporation, Elisa Fiola, a cybersecurity advisor in the Technology Transformation Services in GSA's Federal Acquisition Service, and Ben Boykin, the Vice President of Public Sector for Venify. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated on the challenges of implementing the Zero Trust Executive Order at a recent HR cybersecurity breakfast. My guests on that panel were Shane Barney, the Chief Information Security Officer for the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services in DHS, Miguel Adams, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Millennium Challenge Corporation, Elisa Fiola, a Cybersecurity Advisor in the Technology Transformation Services in GSA's Federal Acquisition Service, and Ben Boykin, the Vice President of Public Sector for Venify. First, we hear from Ben Boykin from Venify, and then the panelists take questions from the audience. At Venify, what we're seeing throughout all public sector is this kind of change between classic architecture, which is what was rolled out, and this cloud native, uh, this modern architecture. And so what we first used to hear, when I would do panels like this years ago, we would say, trust but, what's the word? Verify. Verify. That's what we always used to say. Now we're saying, deny. <laughs> but identify. <laughs> right? That, so it's about your identification. 
So we're seeing that in the world and that identification comes from the user side as well as the machines. So uh, there's kind of four principles that we are looking around that. So it's the, the nigh piece. One is the context. You gotta have context of now within this zero trust world. So I live in Virginia. I normally log into Venify. They see me coming from Virginia, that's fine. All of a sudden, if you see me coming from Russia, that's context, right? What, you have to have that context in this zero trust world that we live in. Uh, and the next piece is just granularity. So now with cloud natives, you've got microservices, you've got mesh, you, you are now out there and all of these things have identities. What we heard from the panel here, what we heard in the past panel is your resources, your people are not increasing. You know what's increasing? Machines, mm -hmm. IoT devices, right? Those applications, the people are spinning things up and then taking them down in a day. All of those things have identity and you have to have trust around that. Uh, and then the last piece is just being dynamic. You've got to dynamically just be able to, as things spin up in town, actually get a, your arms around that. So when we talk about the machine identity piece, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing it, it is a struggle, right? We've, we, we all heard Jamie say, hey, the, the castle's gone, the moat area. Uh, the perimeter's gone, and now within Zero Trust, it's a good strategy to start, um, but it's a strategy, right? The interoperability that folks were talking about, that ecosystem, the integration, they all have to work together. All right, we're gonna get to your questions, so please think of them, but I'm gonna give Ben the one logical follow-up that I have. I, I love this idea as you talk about machines and identity. So. When we think about machines, I remember several years ago when NASA, for an example, was getting into RPA, and they were doing a lot of, well, does this bot need a PIV card? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. And then I know GSA has done a lot with bots, and they maybe took a bit of a different approach. And then finally, OMB came out with a memo that said, yes, but you, you can kind of make, make a risk-based decision. So, I know you're not necessarily talking about just RPA, but, right, but right. machine identity is a, is a huge deal. Maybe talk a little bit about how you all think about that security side of it. Yeah, so, I mean, like you just said, from a machine perspective, those can be applications. We're seeing it all the time. I've got a customer where they were utilizing different machines. It was a robot uh, and did not understand that there's a machine identity tied to it. I mean, I recently was in a conversation and their whole plant stopped because the machine identities expired. And that was millions of dollars and they didn't even realize they had those machine identities because we're now moving so quickly and it was a group that purchased that. So they're everywhere and they're exponentially growing and you have to have a good programmer around your machine identity management. I'll open up to the panel. Machine identities, uh, I think Shane probably has something to say. Yeah, I, I think that you're not wrong. I mean, we have 22, 25,000 users, I think. 
growing every day. And, and so the, the, and there's, there tends to be this focus on users, like that's the only problem. I have 150,000 endpoints, which is the bigger problem. It's the endpoints. The endpoints are far more difficult. And we've never really applied structured identity to them. Um, and, and so to do that at scale, and especially at speed, when you're talking cloud environments, you, you're going to have to automate that. So having cert automation is like a forefront building block to all things that you do in this space. And it's also the thing that most organizations lack. They don't even think about it and, until everything goes dark one day and they're like, well, what's going on? <laughs> exactly. And, and you're not automating just the, the assert the piece of it. You have to automate all the roles because each one of those things is going to have a role. It's going to have some function in your organization. And when it starts going awry, it's doing something that its role is outside of that. Well, now you have a different problem because the entire in, intent of zero trust, if, stick with that term. Um, the entire intent of zero trust is not to find the huge outliers outside the bell curve, it's to find these little tiny little bumps on the bell curve itself, and you only find those in the details. Um, if you look at SolarWinds as the best example of that, you know, Threat Actor spent months and months and months on, on individual organizational networks just quietly creeping around, living inside that bell curve, and did an unfrickin' unbelievably great job at it. And, and the entire intent of what you do in a zero trust architecture is to identify those small, little, tiny, minute changes. Things that are so small that the human eye is never going to catch them, then this is where your automation becomes your friend. Miguel or Elisa, anyone? I can go to audience questions. Who has one? Here we go. You always count on break. So, so with Tom, I'm holding the microphone because Tom hasn't learned his lesson. <laughs> so Eric Florence, Veracode question about uh, the way you guys are dealing with zero trust. A lot of times I hear people talk about, hey, we got you know identity, we got machines, we got all this stuff. But then you talk about collaboration, being able to work with other silos. Uh, how is your zero trust taking in all the pillars? And how are you managing you know, the application layer, the data in addition to identity and network? Well, how Zero Trust is taking in all the, all the pillars. And so I, I don't have a good answer for you other than to say we are, we're, we're I don't want to boil the ocean, to be honest with you. Uh, we're we're a, a young agency. We're looking at right now the, the identity pillar, device uh, pillar, and data pillars. The DevOps, the application workload, those are, for us, uh, a little bit harder. Uh, we don't have a lot of development, uh, unlike some other agencies that have uh, big development. Uh, we have a little bit of it. So we're prioritizing that. We, our, our user community, our, our customers, they travel. They travel with their endpoints. And so devices are very, are very important. Identity access very important. And the data is, is very important. So I, that's how I'm dealing with it. I'm, I'm prioritizing, uh, taking the pillars I, that I know are, are most important to us at, at the moment. So I'll, I, we have a slightly different, our, our, the way we're approaching is slightly different. One, we started down the zero trust pathway not a year ago. We started down in 2018. And we called it this really crazy term called cyber hygiene. Sure, some of you may have heard it. It's actually all zero trust is. But that, that being aside, you know, we started focusing in first on, on solving some of the basic building blocks, things that we needed, whether it was cert automation, API, security, 
Um, we, we established a centralized role-based access program. We established central, we had single sign-on across the agency into all of our applications. We did all the basics. And so jump forward to when the EO actually came out and they said, oh, hey, this is really important now. We were already kind of pretty far down that path. Now, I will tell you that identity and even the networking pieces are probably the easiest part of the entire gig. The 85% lift, the hardest part is applications and data. And doing data in stream and in flight, unreal difficult. Right. Um, I, you know, we are, as an agency, immigration is, we are a huge data, data collector, as you can well imagine. I, I forget how many millions of new records we create every year. It's, it's astronomical. Um, and all, not to mention all of our paper files that we're digitizing, and that's good fun too. Um, and so you factor in all that data that has them protected, and it goes far beyond just the data in and of itself, because you've got to identify the subtypes of data, and when collections of data become sensitive versus non-sensitive, and how that transitions, and the laws that govern that are just mind-boggling. So all that being whirled into one, getting, getting your hands wrapped around is very difficult. So it, it is a huge team effort. It involves so much more than just me. I happen to run it. I happen to spearhead it from my agency, but it involves CDO. It involves all of our engineering groups, all of our dev groups. It involves all of the business functions because at the end of the day, whether I like it or not, and, I, and I've heard this, I've heard the statement before, oh yeah, if you do zero trust right, it won't affect the end users. Well, that's wrong. You know, if you're smart, if you're good at it, you'll you'll use what my one of my my employees calls smart friction, which I a term I totally love, because the idea is, is do you apply friction where it makes the most sense? Um, does that mean you're going to get it right? No, no, you're going to mess it up more times than you kind of care to remember. But I think that goes back to some of the points that I've made here, where the customer engagement, getting in, getting with your end users, and having them understand what it is you're doing and why you're doing it, is really critical. I I, I don't know how you're going to do it without it. I mean, I, we. Just now, we're just starting a roadshow where I am literally going around my agency. We have, we're going to have offices in every country in the nation and then several places all around the world where we're going to start communicating literally directly with each of our end users, explaining why we're doing this and tying the security side of it to the realities of what they're going to be faced with. It's a nightmare in a word. <laughs> It's a good nightmare. It, it is. It's a fun nightmare. As a, as a CISO, absolutely. It is the funnest nightmare I've ever wanted to go take on. You know, but at the same time, I, I have this philosophy that security at the end of the day has to be a mission enabler. Yeah. And if you become the no shop or the place where all things go to die, you're not enabling the mission. The mission's just going to find a way to get done around you. Uh, and so you've got to work hand in hand with the mission side and the business side to help them understand what it is you're doing, why you're doing it, and sometimes make compromises on that. We do it all the time. It's, it, it, it's a dance. It's a waltz. Yeah, so I would say from a Venify perspective, we've got a full-on pillar diagram that goes into what we address. As he just said, and what you've heard from other folks in the panel, there's no silver bullet, right, of all of these pillars. From a Venify perspective, we've got a machine identity management fund where we fund every year $12 million to integrate with our ecosystem partners because there is no silver bullet, right? It is a partnership with the federal government, the partners that are here to definitely solidify organizations and make us better from a, a vendor perspective and protect the nation. From an emerging technology perspective, and if you want to put your other hat on a little bit on TTS. If, what, what, what are the questions you get about the, when you talk about the different parts of zero trust that are 
hey, how do we do this? How do we need help with this? Is there anything that, that stands out to you that you're like, because identity is something the government's been working on since HSP oh, yeah. 12, 2004, not perfectly. And ignored properly. Right. Yeah, <laughs> ignored properly. I, I really like the friction. Uh, smart friction. Line. Smart friction. Smart friction. Uh, and one of the things we're saying, progress, not perfection. I like to say, like, freaking first times, like, you're not going to get it right the first time. And it's the identity piece is definitely, like, there. But, like, it really, me personally, it's... I, I always go back to the risk management framework. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm a huge purist when it comes to that. It's a little, like not popular but like map the con the, the NIST controls for like zero trust to the RMF and you'll have a good like baseline of like what to prioritize and start there like you're gonna have some controls that are gonna be non-compliant maybe the ones that are related to zero trust like you prioritize those instead and make sure you're categorizing your system appropriately. Like, I, I think a lot of times folks like to do the cart before the horse and miscategorize their systems because they're afraid that it's going to mean more controls than they would like, not realizing that they can tailor or it's not a checklist based and they can accept risk or, you know, that CISO's offices really are no longer the no-shop because it's not compliance-based anymore. They are accepting risks. Um, and so there is a difference between categorizing and risk acceptance. So that's what we try to uh, instill and uh, get the message across whenever we have the chance. We have to take a break. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated on the challenges of implementing the Zero Trust Executive Order at a recent HR cybersecurity breakfast. My guests on that panel were Shane Barney, the Chief Information Security Officer for the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services in DHS, Miguel Adams, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Millennium Challenge Corporation, Elisa Fiola, a Cybersecurity Advisor in the Technology Transformation Services in GSA's Federal Acquisition Service, and Ben Boykin, the Vice President of Public Sector for Venify. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated on the challenges of implementing the Zero Trust Executive Order at a recent HR cybersecurity breakfast. My guests on that panel were Shane Barney, the Chief Information Security Officer for the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services in DHS, Miguel Adams, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Millennium Challenge Corporation, Elisa Fiola, a Cybersecurity Advisor in the Technology Transformation Services in GSA's Federal Acquisition Service, and Ben Boykin, the Vice President of Public Sector for Venify. For this segment, the panelists continue to take questions from the audience. Good morning, Lynn with Jolly, HackerOne. Elisa, I know you're very involved in bug bounty programs, yeah. and I'd really like to get your uh, opinion on how innovative are they and um, where do they fit in your whole zero trust uh, architecture? Bug bounty programs um, are a great tool to use to incentivize when programs have, uh, as a part of their risk management process, especially when we're talking about software development and you're rolling out new features and that you might be taking a little more risk. Um, one of the things that's really important when 
thinking about bug, you know, internet accessible web applications is they're already, the bugs are already out there. So what you're doing when you're having a, a vulnerability disclosure program and potentially adding a bounty onto it with a bug bounty is that you're incentivizing to have those security researchers tell you about what they've found instead of telling their other uh, security researcher friends that might use that information maliciously. So it is, but you have to make those incentives, um, the right incentives, and they have to be commensurate with the systems that are out there. So I, I think they're a really useful tool um, when used appropriately and as a uh, risk mitigation activity. Yeah, I'd just like to piggyback. We've uh, used the uh, CDM uh, VDP platform. It's been, uh, for our agency, it's been wonderful. It's uh, five or, you know, I can't remember how many vulnerabilities we've closed on that. But it's been uh, very, very, uh, the process is very clean, not a difficult uh, process for us to follow. And it's, and it's brought in, uh, I think, a, a more secure system. Because you've got the researchers taking a look at it and say, hey, this needs to be uh, a SQL injection, you know, vulnerability, take a look at it. Another question? Matthew Shepard, HHS. Uh, I just want to second, um, HHS has been running a closed bug bounty for probably five years now. It's been a huge tool for helping us reduce risk, so if you want to talk about it, happy to, happy to hear talk about it. But I did want to ask more directly um, on how you see us testing which controls are actually, and, and getting some real data on getting controls that are working. How do we know they're working? How are you approaching that process? Because I hear a lot of, we're going to get it wrong, and I know that's true. But you know, if you come into a building where they're doing engineering, they always have this stack of things that you're supposed to do, and it's well, well documented. We don't have that as a cybersecurity engineer. So we're left sort of guessing at some level and, and collaborating. But getting real stats, getting real information on what's working, that's what I'm hoping we get to to some level. Love your comments on that. I'll so it's so almost like measuring success. Measuring success. You know, what's effective in each of those things? Because we're going to spend money on things, and some of them are going to be really effective. Spend a lot of money, actually. Yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> knowing which ones are good is really what I'm hunting for. Yeah, so there's a couple different approaches, and we've toyed with this for a while. Um, when we started into the cloud, we started doing agile. The security program wasn't up to the task. Wasn't even the ballpark. I, they could barely spell cloud. And in fact, at the time, there was this, this statement I used to hear all the time: "Oh, cloud is nothing more than a data center in the sky." No, it is not. It is <laughs> certainly not. It is so not that I can't even stress how little it is not that. There are advantages to cloud. There are I don't know if there's any advantages to data centers, but there are advantages to the cloud that, that, from a security perspective, that I just love and, and have come to love and come to appreciate. In terms of answering your question directly, the way we begin, we, we had the same, we had a very similar problem. We weren't sure when we were being effective, and and that's a it's a governmental kind of question to ask. So it's kind of, I, I, you know you know you're from the government when you ask something like that, but um, at the same time it's an important one because you know what you when you look at the controls, what are controls? Controls are just known risk. They, they, there are things we absolutely know are a risk for one reason or another. These are at risk that because of some previous incident or just because someone really smart thought it up, but they are known risks. And if you know that they're known risks, then you should be able to deal with them. So the approach that we took is we began to own
own the lower environments. And then providing all of our development, and bear in mind, my agency's a heavy, heavy dev shop. I've got like 3,000 developers running around. I, we do development like you've never seen. While I've been sitting here, we've had three major releases from some of our biggest applications, and that's just a normal everyday day for me. But you know, when we do that, what we've done is by owning the lower environments, meaning that they can't be changed, they can't be altered, they're inherited up. Those at least base level controls, I used to refer to it as base security. It's just base level security. In other words, there's no way, the cloud, the, you know, it's always a cloudless sky, it's always blue, and the development teams can't do a darn thing about it. Um, they inherit that environment. And then what you do is you own, then you can be in focusing in on the subset of controls that are beyond that, that either have some flexibility in them or they're inherently, can't be automated. I mean, I haven't really figured out a way to do like, you know, least privileged on automation. It just doesn't work. You have to have somebody actually looking at it. Yeah. But there are certain things that we can do around those lines. And even with, even these controls that are inherited that have some flexibility, there's still guidelines to which they can they can operate in. And, and we begin to start checking the boxes on those. So I, I, cause my idea, the idea behind a, a risk and threat-based program is you kind of remove all the knowns. You want to automate those out of your existence. Now, you don't forget about them. Um, one of the things I'm always telling my team, I always talk about perceived security. Perceived security is like when we perceive something to be one way, but it's really not. It happens all the time. Oh, I thought we secured that. Well, you didn't, and, and here's why. Um, it happens all the time, actually. So one of the things you have to do is build in those feedback loops. It could be pen testing in blue teams. It could be a vulnerability, you know, external vulnerability assessment programs like Bug Bounty. Um, there's a number of things that you pile onto as a security program that kind of help you ver verify that these things are actually being done. Because that's always the biggest risk. Like, I, I have to assume, I'd like to assume that, that you know, you, my USCIS, one of our bigger forward-facing applications, is nice and secure and happy. Well, when we ran through the bug bounty program, yeah, not so much. So suddenly we found all these really basic, basic vulnerabilities that were either missed or skipped or for whatever reason were left exposed. We should have never, that was just, it was just real basic security stuff that we were missing. That perceived security of what we thought was there and what really was there was very, very, very different. So I'm, I'm the biggest fan of bug bounty programs. I'm the biggest fan of pen testing and very aggressive pen testing, actually. Um, and, and of course now resilience testing throw that in there too, I guess. Um, but having those teams built both internal to you as well as external ones that ha you have no control over. I always worry that the pen test teams ultimately report to me, are they really gonna tell me all the really bad news? Now if they're smart, they will, because I'd fire them if they didn't. But, you know, I might fire them because they tell me really bad, no, I wouldn't have that. But, you know, it is really, really stressful. I can't even stress how often I am I'm constantly telling my teams about the importance of going back and, and, and removing your assumptions and re-looking fresh at what's going on. Because we're always finding things. It's, our environment is so complex and so fast moving that it's just, it's shocking at times, actually, but it, it, it also is inherent to change. That change then drives changes within your security scopes that you have to assess and, and, re, and get your hands wrapped around. And here, automation is your friend. I, I can't, if, you're, if your security program doesn't have as many dev teams in it as, as any other dev shop does, you're probably doing it wrong. Yeah, and to add on to that, uh, specifically the NIST 837 Rev 2 refers to the common control common controls. Platforms, so yep. yeah, I didn't invent this stuff. No, right, exactly. So like <laughs> I said, I'm a NIST nerd. Yeah, exactly. So and there is, I believe, um, there's a RAND study as well that has some like really nerdy math. So I'll get your contact information and send it your way. Um, doing cost calculations and personally, I like to think of the controls like 
like pre like acquisition as requirements when you're developing as assessment test cases and once it's deployed as then those are like audit controls and then doing the continuous monitoring like that continuous cycle as well so it's an easier way to kind of frame it and look at it that way in my perspective yeah and i think to, to answer that question, and we, we have a kind of a prescriptive guide, like you just said, around those controls. Yeah. Uh, and so when you're really looking at the, the, the different pillars that you're talking about, it's about getting that visibility, which some of the folks have already said here. Where can you get the visibility in those pillars? Then where can you get the intelligence? And then as Shane said, the automation. Where can you automate quickly? Because that's where you're gonna get the success quickly, right? And then go, from that up, so we have a guide on how we do that when we go to organizations. What's the one thing you want the audience, and this is a, a, always a good mix of, of federal executives and, and industry, to take away from this, the discussion about cyber hygiene, zero trust, beyond, it's important in the user, and there's an EO, and like, like, like rise above the platitude, Shane. Rise above the platitude, I'm asking you. But since we started with Shane, I'm gonna ask, actually, Ben. <laughs> To lead us, the, you get the, you start, start us off the last word, 30 seconds or so or less. Put them on the spot. Yeah, from a, I mean, Venify perspective, so I heard at some of the other panels, one, we like to go out within our environment. We have this kind of Venify community, and we have a thing that we call heart values, right? So be honest when we're dealing with our customers, um, as well as be aware, risk-taking, and as team before self, and it's really, having a partnership with our customers, making our product better. This, the, the same thing when you talk about from a bug perspective, we do that internally, we call it a hackathon, where it's like, how do we make this better for not just us, but again, to protect our nation. I, th I think from my personal learning today, it just really hit home that it's a spectrum that we're kind of, like Shane was saying, they've been doing this for a long time and still have the low-hanging fruit. Right. So to understand that we're in this chasm of maturity and immaturity all at once and that zero trust, that it's just cyber hygiene rebranded, but playing catch up, yet it's the newest thing. So kind of... It's an odd space to be in, and I don't think we're gonna be here for long because I think the next one, three, five years, it's gonna accelerate even quicker. And, and embrace the oddity. Yes. Yeah. Embrace yeah. the oddity. Miguel? So, yeah, um, value proposition. What are you gonna to deliver to the customer, to the user? You know, if they don't buy into it, that's gonna be an issue. Uh, education and um, Prioritize. Don't boil the ocean. This is, this yeah. is a journey. Yeah. It really, I, I, I wasn't. I didn't buy into that word to begin with. It really is. It's, it's, you can't do it all at one time. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard an excerpt of a panel I moderated on the challenges of implementing the Zero Trust Executive Order at the recent ATARC Cybersecurity Breakfast. My guests on that panel were Shane Barney, the Chief Information Security Officer for the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services at the Homeland Security Department. Miguel Adams, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Elisa Fiola, a Cybersecurity Advisor for the Technology Transformation Services in the General Services Administration's Federal Acquisition Service. And Ben Boykin, Vice President of Public Sector for Venify. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network.
You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.